0: Mark Ashurst-McGee is the Senior Historian in the Church History Department and the Senior Research and Review Editor for the Joseph Smith Papers. He also serves as a specialist in document analysis and documentary editing methodology. He also holds a PhD in history and with that short introduction, we're going to turn the time over to Mark.
1: All right. so today I'm going to talk about Joseph Smith's new translation of the Bible, commonly called the JST. His apparent use of Adam Clark's Bible commentary and the question of plagiarism, which has been raised recently, uh, there's been a lot of uh, talk about this recently, um, based on a study which has just come out showing these parallels between the New Translation, Joseph Smith's New Translation of the Bible, and Adam Clark's Bible Commentary. Um, I'm going to give a try to give a quick overview of everything I'm going to talk about, so that. Things will kind of make sense as we go along. So uh, for background, between 1830 and 1833, Joseph Smith worked on the New Translation, or Joseph Smith Translation, of the King James Version of the Holy Bible. Extracts from the Joseph Smith Translation appear in the Pearl of Great Price, as the books of Moses and Joseph Smith Matthew. Church historians have long recognized that in addition to these and other expansions to the text of the Bible, There are hundreds of slight alterations that require no revelation or inspiration and are more plausibly explained as a simple modernizing of the text from the 17th century King James English to the 19th century Latter-day Saints. So the Joseph Smith translation is apparently a combination of supernatural translation given by God and natural modernization by Joseph Smith himself. And we'll look at examples of that. Recent research seems to show that Joseph Smith drew upon Methodist theologian Adam Clark's Bible commentary for several significant revisions in the JST, perhaps accounting for about 5% of the changes. Some detractors say that Joseph Smith is therefore guilty of plagiarism, However, the word plagiarism means borrowing without attribution. Joseph Smith never published the JST as he had planned, so we do not know how he would have presented it. Each of the books of church scripture published in Joseph Smith's lifetime includes introductory material providing some explanation for the book's contents. If the JST had been published, it likely would have included such an introduction, like the other books of church scripture. Such an introduction may well have given some kind of attribution to Clark or to outside sources generally. Since we don't know whether Joseph Smith would or would not have attributed any outside sources, the detractor's charge of plagiarism, of borrowing without attribution, is requires jumping to a conclusion. Okay, that's the overview. Um, So this new study on the Joseph Smith Translation is published in this uh, recently uh, published book, Producing Ancient Scripture, that I helped to co-edit with Mike McKay and Brian Hauglid. And we uh, actually talked about the book and the issue of uh, the plagiarism issue uh, on the Fair Mormon blog uh, just last week. And I think we're, the book is set to get roasted next week on the Fair Voice podcast, which is fine because you know you got to have a thick skin in this business. So let's let's look at this article then. Uh, It's called a Recovered Resource, The Use of Adam Clark's Bible Commentary in Joseph Smith's Bible Translation um, by Thomas A. Wehment and Haley Wilson Lamont. Okay, and this is the guy they're talking about, Adam Clark. This is is a a likeness of him in the frontispiece to the The Bible Commentary. It's actually a complete text of the authorized version of the Bible with extensive annotations. So let's just look at a few quick examples uh, to get a feel for exactly what we're talking about here. Here's one example from John 2, 24. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men, In the JST, men is revised to things, which is the same change given in Clark's commentary. All right, let's look at Romans 14.23. And he that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. JST revises damned to condemned. This is... Uh, the exact same change ad- advised in Clark's commentary. So if you, if you eat the wrong thing at the wrong time, you're not absolutely going to hell forever. Here's a third example from Romans 11.2. Wot ye not what the scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel? In the JST, intercession is... Revised to Complaint, uh, this, is, this same change is recommended by Clark in his commentary. So, let's, we'll look at one more that's kind of interesting and fun that you might be familiar with, which is that in the JST, um, the Song of Solomon is uh, rejected as uninspired that's kind of interesting because uh, Clark argues strongly against the Song of Solomon. He says you know this this is erotic love poetry and it doesn't say anything about Jesus or the gospel Um, and he essentially rejects Song of Solomon and uh, the JST does as well. So there's a few examples. There's many more. I'm not going to keep going. I just wanted to give you Uh, a bit of a taste of that, and I've picked examples that make for simple slides, but there are many examples like that. Um, I reckon that there's going to be other scholars that come forward and really push back against this idea that the JST is using Clark. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing that scholarship. I'm not sure if this is uh, uh, absolutely proven, but uh, there's definitely uh, a pretty persuasive set of parallels. um, And so it looks like a plausible scenario that uh, we need to look at and deal with. Okay, so. Back to the, the article, they, in, the, in, the, in this chapter of the book they lay out several of these different examples of parallel text and I'm gonna go to some of their conclusions in terms of what they make of all this. So here's, here's part of the conclusion. A careful analysis of the revisions made throughout the Bible confirm a genuine difference between the changes to Genesis 1.1 through 24.41 and the remainder of the Bible revision. The difference may be explained by a change in the mechanics of the translation process. In short, it may have shifted from a more revelatory mode to a more secular mode. I've gone through the whole GST, and, and it's, that pattern is... It's pretty obvious. Okay. Um, they also point out that. Um, in the the large expansions of material about Moses and Enoch. And uh, the last days in Matthew chapter 24. Those are obviously. Pretty obviously. Intended to be understood as. As. Uh, revelatory restorations to the Bible, or revelatory additions to the Bible, at least. And Wayman and Wilson and Lamont did not find any trace of Clark's influence in those major expansions that we have canonized in the Pearl Great Price. So that's noteworthy. Um, and here's another part of their conclusion. The echoes of one of Smith's earliest revelations in which the voice of the Lord admonished Oliver Cowdery to study it out as part of the translation process are now much more obvious in Smith's Bible translation process. This encouragement to study it out could mean more than simple mental exertion. It could be an informed mental engagement with all available resources within and without the mind and one that eventually relied upon actual study in available published resources. Joseph Smith leaned into the logic of the Revelation. Alright, so those are their conclusions uh, at the end of this chapter in the book. And now we're going to talk about uh, the parting of the ways between these two co-authors. And we'll start with uh, Haley wilson Lamont. This is her graduating from Brigham Young University, and I want to talk about. Uh, so uh, Wilson Lamont has has uh, left the church, has been speaking out on uh, anti-Mormon or ex-Mormon or critical uh, post-Mormon uh, websites, podcasts. Um, and she has, uh, she's calling Joseph Smith's use of Adam Clark's commentary plagiarism. So, let's just see exactly what it is that we're uh, addressing today, what this issue is that we're addressing. And, the um, fact of the matter is that this uh, plagiarism thesis uh, is not simply coming from Wilson Lamont. This thesis is actually constructed in the dialogue between uh, Wilson Lamont and the podcasters. So I just want to look at that and show you exactly how this is how this is working. So first we'll look at more discussion. This is the podcast run by Bill Reel and we're going to go through the key moments in the interview where the plagiarism idea is coming from. So, I'm sorry, I'm just going to read through these. Real, I want to ask if you could maybe give us a feel for just how much Joseph is directly borrowing. And for the sake of this conversation, I think it's fair to say plagiarized. Yeah, it is. And I think plagiarism would have been a much different understanding than it's today's scholarly way of seeing plagiarism. But let's just use the word plagiarism. Can you give us a feel for just how much plagiarism Joseph is doing with the Joseph Smith translation using Clark's commentary? He plagiarized Clark about 30 times in his New Testament translation, and there's about 15 direct parallels in the Old Testament. There's a lot. And to go one step further, Joseph Smith would have plagiarized from Adam Clark ideas that Clark had that may not be up to par with the best scholarship today. Yeah. Or even accurate, if we just say, like, truth and error. Yeah, that's fair. Right. So you can see how the thesis is actually constructed in the dialogue between. Uh, Wilson Lamont and her interlocutors. Then you have, after the interview, then you have the packaging, okay? So here, for example, is the title of this podcast that I've just given you excerpts from. Episode 299, Haley Lamont, the Joseph Smith Translation, Revelation or Plagiarism, okay? And then the little preface to the interview, as this, the major discovery here was that Joseph Smith direct borrowed or plagiarized heavily from Adam Clark's commentary in order to carry out his Bible translation. There is a multiple of tangents we can we take this conversation. What led to this research? How pervasive this plagiarism was? Okay, so now we're going to look at the other major source of the plagiarism thesis, which is Wilson Lamont's uh, podcast interview on Mormon stories. Okay, again, you're going to s- we'll see how the thesis is, is constructed. Dillon, from this article you talk about various types of plagiarisms or borrowings. I don't think the term plagiarism is used in the article, but, no, but, I talked to you beforehand, you're okay using that term. Yeah, and I'm okay using that term because we know Joseph Smith plagiarized in the Book of Mormon. Yeah, 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 and you know, elsewhere. So, really quickly, why? What makes this plagiarism? You know, we talked about that before. What about this qualifies it in your mind as plagiarism? So, honestly, it's the sheer number of examples. Just the sheer amount of, I mean, I guess he's not citing it and telling us where, no, he's not, where, what his source is, right? Yeah, I mean, and obviously, you know, 19th century plagiarism ideas are different from our modern sensibilities of plagiarism. I mean, probably to him, he wasn't. I don't know. Who knows what he was thinking? But, yeah, so the sheer number of instances makes it plagiarism. But I also think the implications of some of these changes, like the implications that Joseph Smith was relying on an outside source to do something that he claimed was an inspired act, I think is what ultimately kind of makes it such a big deal, right? Yeah, he's claiming it's from the gift and power of God, and he's not giving the source where it comes from. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Okay. The other word for that is plagiarism. Right? Yes. Yes. So again, you can see how it's not just Wilson LeMond, it's really the the dialogue between the two. And uh, let me just say really quickly, I made as exact transcripts of this as I could, and so that's why it has like the uh's and the um's and the mumbles and burbles and stuff. And I I think I probably, right now, I'm doing that more than they do, so I'm not, this is not to try to like make them look bad. Don't let that be a red herring, okay? Alright, so then at the end of the interview, uh, Dillon's kind of like talking about the conclusions of the chapter, and he says, so you do just basically say, without saying, Joseph Smith engaged in a lot of plagiarism when he created the Joseph Smith Translation. Now, I don't think Thomas Wayman would use that word, but, but that's your conclusion. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now let's. Those are the main excerpts. Uh, let's go to the packaging. Episode 1,338. Haley Wilson Lamont, the BYU undergrad who discovered Joseph Smith's plagiarisms in his Bible translation. And here's the preface. In the summer of 2015, something truly remarkable happened. A BYU undergraduate, along with her professor, discovered yet another example of plagiarism on the part of Joseph Smith, this time in the canonized Joseph Smith translation. Join me and scholar Haley Wilson Lamont today as we discuss this groundbreaking research she conducted at BYU alongside Professor Thomas A. Wayment, as together they discovered literally hundreds of instances where Joseph Smith plagiarized portions of the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible directly from Madame Clark's Bible commentary. Okay, so. That's uh, Haley Wilson Lamont. Now let's talk about the path followed by uh, Thomas A. Wayment. Um Let's start with his 10 questions interview with uh, Kurt Manwaring uh, in the, his From the Desk series, sponsored by BOE Studies. Okay. In this interview, uh, Weyman says, When news inadvertently broke that a source had been uncovered that was used in the process of creating the JST, some were quick to use that information as a point of criticism against Joseph or against the JST. Words like plagiarism were quickly brought forward as a reasonable explanation of what was going on. To be clear, plagiarism is a word that to me implies an overt attempt to copy the work of another person directly and intentionally without attributing any recognition to the source from which the information was taken. And then he says the way he looks at it. To the best of my understanding, Joseph Smith used Adam Clark as a Bible commentary to guide his mind and thought process to consider the Bible in ways that he wouldn't have been able to do so otherwise. Joseph didn't have training in ancient languages or the history of the Bible, but Adam Clark did. And Joseph appears to have appreciated Clark's expertise, and in using Clark as a source, Joseph at times adopted the language of that source as he revised the Bible. Okay. Now let's go to his Gospel Tangents podcast. Wayman says it's conclusive that Joseph Smith used Adam Clark, and when I say use, I want to stick by that term. So he's addressing the plagiarism issue here. This isn't him simply saying, "Okay, here's three sentences in Clark. I'm going to copy it out and call that inspiration." It's not that. He has some words that come from Clark that now come into a kind of expanded sentence that Joseph has created. Okay, now we'll go to his recent article in the Journal of Mormon History, Joseph Smith, Adam Clark, and the Making of the Bible Revision. And I need to advance this. Okay, here's the... Sorry. All right, there's the Gospel Tangents podcast. There's the recent article. Okay, in the article, he focuses a lot on the labor-intensive process of the JST, with Joseph Smith working with his scribes and how they uh, how they used were uh, uh, marking up a Bible with changes and um, some of the dynamics there. And he also talks about the kinds of changes that are made that are, appear to be related to Clark, and shows how the use of Clark is very selective and how the use of Clark is um, often adapting what's there. So he really presents it more in terms of a creative utilization or a critical utilization as opposed to like massive hunks of direct borrowing or plagiarism. Okay, all right, so Let's just talk about this framing uh, in the first place. If we're when we when we frame if we're framing this kind of borrowing as plagiarism, is that problematic? Um, so first of all, uh, we've already kind of covered some hints that the the word plagiarism has connotations that have changed over time and it was different in the culture of Joseph Smith's time than it is today where we have such common college education and journalism standards and uh, things have changed a lot there. But it is a word in Joseph Smith's world, okay? So here it, here it is in uh, the 1828 edition of Webster's Dictionary plagiarism, the act of purloining another man's literary works. So you've got some some sexism there fitting the time. The act of purloining another man's literary works or introducing passages from another man's writings and putting them off as one's own. Literary theft. So it is a word in Joseph Smith's culture um, not entirely different from uh, somewhat close to our current understanding. Um, but then there's, then there's the, the issues of what constitutes what actually constitutes plagiarism in our culture and what actually was considered plagiarism in Joseph Smith's time. Okay. Some other ways to think about this are offered in this new book, The Pearl Greatest Price by Terrell Givens with Brian Hauglid. And Givens talks about this concept of bricolage, where he... Givens is is kind of a historian of Western civilization and culture and literature. And he talks about how everything is always influencing everything. Everyone's always recycling and remixing things. But they do it in different ways. They break, break down parts and rearrange them in different ways. And this is, a, this is a concept that the anthropologist or sociologist Levi-Strauss calls bricolage. And uh, Gibbons talks about that. Okay, here's another recent uh, treatment that is a different way to look at this. Um, Sam Brown's new book, Joseph Smith's Translation. And uh, he recently just did a, a 10 questions interview. And um, the last chapter in that book, he talks about the Mormon temple endowment. And uh, some of the elements of Freemasonry that appear there. And, oops, back up. Okay. And uh, there's a great quotation there where he kind of explains this idea. There's definitely a thread of repurposed Masonic ritual in the endowment, but the Masonic component is more like several pieces of brightly colored string in a robin's nest, rather than the entire structure. We shouldn't confuse components with the whole. In logic, that's the the fallacy of of, uh, division, that what's true of the whole is also true of the parts, or the... Flip side of that would be the fallacy of composition. What's true of the parts is true of the whole. Okay, now I'm going to talk about one more idea here, which uh, this, is, this is from Steve Fleming's dissertation, where he's talking about E.P. Thompson's evaluation of the sources of inspiration drawn upon by William Blake. Blake's sources of inspiration, Blake never cites any sources of inspiration, so there's lots of scholarly literature kind of battling over what influenced him, or what inspired him. Um, right, so there's Blake, you know, he's, he's this famous English poet, painter, mystic, um, You're probably most familiar with his art from Blake Osler's uh, Mormon Theology series. So, this is E.P. Thompson on William Blake. We have become habituated to reading in an academic way. We learn of influence. We are directed to a book or a reputable intellectual tradition. We set this book beside that book. We compare and cross-refer. But Blake had a different way of reading. He would look into a book with a directness which we might find to be naive or unbearable, challenging each one of its arguments against his own experience and his own system. He took each author, even the Old Testament prophets, as his equal or as something less. And he acknowledged as between them. No received judgments as to their worth. No hierarchy of accepted Reputability. So this kind of explains how Blake has this different way of reading and maybe almost like kind of a prophetic posture where he's considering himself standing shoulder to shoulder with the prophets and um, measuring everything against this inner spirit of truth inside of him. It kind of makes sense why he never cites anybody. This is kind of a a different way to look at the issue. Okay. So, another problem with the plagiarism thesis and most critique against the JST is that it sets up a straw man uh, of of what Mormons are supposed to believe the JST is. Latter-day Saints are supposed to believe it is. So let's just go to the Bible dictionary really fast. Joseph Smith Translation. A revision or translation of the King James Version of the Bible. Okay. Here's another example. Robert G. Matthews quoted in the Ensign Magazine, the Church Periodical, the translation was not a simple mechanical recording of divine dictum but rather a study and thought process accompanied and prompted by revelation from the Lord. So, Revelation prompts Joseph Smith to enter into this study and thought process, and as he's doing this study and thought process, he's accompanied by revelation from the Lord. But it's not ruling out the possibility of any little change not being a direct result of pure revelation with no thought in his own mind. Okay, So let's get into the nitty-gritty on this for just a few minutes so you can see kind of what I mean when I talk about mundane changes or modernizations. Okay, here's just one simple example. This is the JST for Mark 12:32. There is one God and there is none other but He. And in the JST, Joseph Smith changed he to him. There's one God and there's none other but him. There are hundreds of changes like this in the JST. Do we have to assume, must we assume that when Joseph Smith changed he to him, he meant for us to understand that change as a result of pure revelation? That's the question. So, I, I recently went through the JST, so this, this made a huge impact on me. Um, Alright, let's just look at... Uh, There's several examples of modernization where he's taking 17th century King James English and making a modern adaptation for 19th century Latter-day Saints. Okay, changing thee to you, changing thou to you. Changing ye to you. There's about 82 instances of changing ye to you. Do we have to believe that every single one of those instances of changing ye to you must be a direct result of Revelation and that Joseph Smith means for us to accept it that way? Okay, let's look at the, some more. Watteth to knoweth. What to know. Wist to knew, hoping to help, dwelt to dwelt, shalt to shall, draweth to draw, seeketh to seek, spake to spoke, gat to got, betrayeth to betrayeth, hath to has, hast to has, afore. To before, aforehand to beforehand, always to always, amongst to among. And again, there are hundreds of these. By my count, I made a register of all these. By my count, there's over 1,200 changes like this. Do we have to assume that Joseph Smith, when he changed a to among, that every time he did that, he meant for us to understand every single instance of change like that to be the result of pure revelation? I think it's theoretically possible that Joseph Smith saw the whole DST as inspired in terms of being generally inspired to modernize Uh, all these hundreds of words, but in terms of each individual change, um, while that's theoretically possible that every single little change like this is a product of pure revelation, I and others actually think it's as much or more plausible that this is Joseph Smith making some minor changes in the Bible. And if that's the case, let's just break that down, what that means. If that's the case, what that means is that the JST, hang on, I think I've got a slide here, is a combination of both divine revelation from God to Joseph Smith and Joseph Smith's own editorial decisions. Okay? And, and this is crucial because If Joseph Smith is himself on his own the source of some of the changes in the Joseph Smith translation, now you have to look at him in his environment, okay? Because Joseph Smith's mind is not hermetically sealed off from his family and friends and his acquaintances, and it's not sealed off from interactions with other people like his scribes. And we know that Joseph Smith discusses the Bible with other people. There are many examples of that. And we have good reason to believe that Joseph Smith is discussing things with his scribes as they're working on the JST. One case in point is Doctrine and Covenants 76. If you read the introduction to Section 76, The Vision of the Three Degrees of Glory in the History of Joseph Smith, he explains that they're apparent, it's not totally explicit, but they're apparently having a conversation about the meaning of John chapter 5, verse 29. So, a revelation comes from that, but before the vision comes, they're doing the JST, and they're talking about what passages mean. So, if Joseph Smith is himself a source for some of the changes in the JST, that means that Joseph Smith, in his interpersonal relationships with his scribes, and perhaps others, is working on the JST. And Joseph Smith... And it goes beyond just these interpersonal relations with scribes, right? Because Smith and his scribe are part of a wider religious culture. And they're part, so they're part of a wider oral culture of church meetings and preaching and expounding from the Bible. And they're part of a wider literary culture of tracts and pamphlets and religious newspapers and books that have biblical exegesis in it or Bible commentaries. And so, once you can accept that Joseph Smith himself is a source of the JST, uh, you can see how much sense it makes for when, if it is him making a change, that's him making a change in the culture in the total environment of his own thoughts, of his conversations with scribes and others, and in the wider culture of sermons and biblical exegesis, which can include printed sources. Did Joseph Smith and his scribes consider themselves forbidden from looking at any Bible commentaries? Uh, It just doesn't make sense to try to seal off Joseph Smith from his culture. In fact, it makes a lot of sense For Joseph Smith as he's working on the JST to be reading the text, thinking about the text, discussing the text, and maybe even reading other things. Okay, so we talked about cultural context. Now we're going to talk about paratexts. Okay, so for the JST, how does it how does it kind of present itself? So here's the cover for uh, copy one of the New Testament changes. And you can see it says, the first book of the New Testament translated by the gift of God. Okay. And this is the head note inside the book. A translation of the New Testament translated by the power of God. These are two examples of several others where the JST clearly presents itself as a uh, revelatory translation. Okay, now here's the head note in the front of uh, New Testament Manuscript 2. Kirtland, Giago, Ohio, April 4th, 1831. A translation of the New Testament by Joseph Smith, Jr. Okay, so let's compare those a translation of the New Testament translated by the power of God, that's, it. that's the New Testament 1 manuscript headnote, and the New Testament 2, manuscript 2 headnote, a translation of the New Testament by Joseph Smith. Okay, now, we could make too much of that. The second title I don't think is implying that they no longer consider uh, the. JST to be a product of Revelation, but the timing between New Testament manuscript 1 and 2 is around the time when Joseph Smith finishes the major expansions in Genesis and they begin and they move to the New Testament and start using, uh, comparing the Synoptic Gospels, and apparently this is, and it seems to be this is around where they start using Clark. So it's possible that this revised title does reflect a changed uh, understanding of the project. And again, that, you can make too much of that, but this is an interesting change that may reflect uh, the change that does happen in the JST process. Okay. I'm just going to say that, I, working for the Joseph Smith Papers Project, I'm familiar with many books, like The Scriptory Book, The Book of the Law of the Lord, where a book starts, it receives a title, and as, things, as the project goes along, the nature of the methodology of documentary production changes. Okay, Now, quickly, we're going to run through the context of early church publications, and this is what I really think maybe I can add to this discussion. Everything we've talked about so far, a lot of people are kind of getting at. Wayment is getting at himself and other commentators. But this is something new that I think is worth looking at, and that is the context of early church publications. We're going to do this really fast. Okay, the Book of Mormon was published in 1830, and it has a title page, which is kind of like a preface, and then it has a preface. Okay, also has in uh, the back matter the testimonies of the witnesses. Then we have the Book of Commandments in 1833. Chapter 1, the first revelation in the Book of Commandments, begins with verse 1, which calls itself a preface and serves as a preface. Then in 1835, we have the Doctrine and Covenants, which has a preface. In 1830, it's dated 35, but probably February 36, we have the first church hymnal, which has a preface. This is the 1837 Book of Mormon. Again, you have the title page, and you have Another preface, a new preface. Uh, this is the appeal to the American people on account of the persecutions. It has a preface. Okay. Then you have the 18, uh, the third edition of the Book of Mormon. No preface. Kind of strange. And then you have the new hymnal. It reprints the pre- old hymnal preference. And then you have the 1844 DNC. Again, no preface. These are all of the church books published in Joseph Smith's lifetime. Okay? If there's a pattern there, maybe it's that church books have prefaces and then when they're reprinted they have a slightly longer preface and then in the third edition the prefaces get dropped for some reason. I don't know why but maybe it's because these books now have a reception history in the community and people know what they are. Okay, I'm wrapping it up now, quickly. Uh, We're going to zip through these again, and I'll just make a couple observations, and then we'll be done. Really quickly, I just want to show you here, this is the preface for Adam Clark's Bible Commentary. And then down in the bottom paragraph, he explains how, in a kind of specific, in some respects, but also very general in other respects, how These are some of the sources I've drawn upon. Uh, Did I say Clark? I meant to say it's the Finney Bible. Okay. The the sources they used, um, they checked against. So, the Book of Mormon title page basically tells you that this is Scripture coming from God. The preface says, uh, it's translated by the gift and power of God. Uh, Joseph Smith also says in the preface where he got the plates from, okay? The testimonies of the witnesses, uh, the three witnesses especially, says that they've been told by an angel and by the voice of God that the translation is by the power of God. So now we know the source of the content in the Book of Mormon, okay? In the Book of Commandments, chapter 1, verse 1, the preface tells us this is, these are revelations. Now, in the Doctrine and Covenants, it's a little different, okay, because the preface for the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants starts out by saying, we're not going to give you a lengthy preface. None of these prefaces are lengthy, but the first part of the book, part one, will be found to contain a series of lectures as delivered before a theological class in this place, whereas part two is the selection of Joseph Smith's revelations, okay? So... Looking at the Book of the Mormon and the DNC, if a preface to the JST was, if the JST was published, it would probably have a preface like these other books. Maybe it would be like the Book of Mormon, where it says, this is revelation, okay? But another possibility is, it's going to be something like the DNC preface, where it says, some of this is divine revelation, and some of this is theological explication, Okay, now really quickly, we're out of time, but this is the most important, uh, the most interesting, I think, is the hymnal. And the preface to the hymnal explains that the the hymnal has a few songs of Zion, which are songs written by Latter-day Saints for Latter-day Saint worship. And it says, we hope in the next edition of the hymnal we'll have more of these songs of Zion. The rest of the hymns in here are presumably borrowed from other hymnals. And the preface says that some of them have been adapted to their faith, the Latter-day Saints' faith and belief in the gospel. And that could be demonstrated how some of the hymns are adapted. Okay, So uh, looking at this precedent, we could guess that if the JST were published, its preface might say, uh, some of these changes are from Joseph Smith and others are borrowed and adapted. Okay. And then uh, I, I won't go into the next Book of Mormon but there's more information there on the source. Okay. And so I'm going to wrap it up by trying to say exactly what I'm trying to say here by by reading it out. I need to help myself here, okay? This is my point. The word plagiarism means borrowing without attribution. Joseph Smith never published the JST as he had hoped and planned, so we do not know how he would have presented it. If the JST had been published, it likely would have included a preface of some sort, like other books of church scripture. Such an introduction may well have given some kind of attribution to Clark or to outside sources generally, like the hymnal does. However, we simply do not know whether Joseph Smith would or would not have given attribution to any outside sources. Therefore, the charge of plagiarism or borrowing without attribution rests upon an assumption that Joseph Smith would have presented the new translation without any form of attribution to outside sources. Making or accepting the charge of plagiarism with its inbuilt assumption thus requires jumping to the conclusion. Thank you.
0: Thank you for letting me go over You're fine, you did well. It's good. So, uh, a few questions. first question has to do with the general assumption about the Joseph Smith translation, and you addressed it somewhat, but I'm going to ask you a different way. I'm looking at a copy of the letter to a CES director, and he talks about the, the Book of Mormon includes mistranslated biblical passages that were later changed in Joseph Smith's translation of the Bible. These Book of Mormon verses should match the Joseph... The inspired Joseph Smith translation instead of the incorrect King James version, which Joseph Smith later fixed. And um, he gives some examples. Now there's one problem in the letter is the examples that he gives, he's matching the wrong verses. In other words, he says, look they don't match, that's because it's actually the wrong verses he's matching. But what do you think about his underlying premise that the Joseph's mistranslation of the Bible is the inspired version, should therefore, at least it seems to me he implies, should be the perfect translation of what should be in the Book of Mormon and such.
1: Right. So, uh, my point of view there would be, uh, you know, the Book of Mormon does not present itself as perfect. It does present itself as uh, a, a scribal tradition that has been kept more pure than what the Bible's gone through. But at the same time, uh, it's absolutely explicit that it contains mistakes of men. And then, uh, and that's what's on the golden plates. And after the long, massively complex uh, transmission history of Nephite records. (laughs) Okay, then you have the translation issues with Joseph Smith, okay? And I've talked about uh, what I think is a a different but related set of translation issues with the JST, and so I just don't really see a problem there, and I, I do think that thinking that way is problematic. Now, uh, growing up in the church, going to Sunday school and seminary, uh, it's, it's easy to in, inherit a simple view like that. But I would emphasize that uh, church historians and scripture scholars uh, have been showing the more complex reality for decades Uh, to the point where this is filtered into the Ensign magazine as I showed and the Bible dictionary which is printed in our scriptures. So uh, I feel like here today I'm just trying to add to that and and help us have a more uh, more developed understanding of the JST.
0: Thank you so next question is since we know the JST was a collaborative effort with the participation of Sidney Rigdon and others, how much can we confidently ascribe the use of Clark specifically to Joseph himself, as opposed to other participants in the project? In other words, could could the use of Clark have come through Rigdon or another participant? Or is this distinction between the participants too atomizing and not warranted?
1: (laughs) So uh, this is a hypothesis that's been forwarded uh, by... In the in the original chapter by Wayman and Wilson Lamont, um, and and there's, I think there is reason to uh, look into that, but uh, I haven't found anything more than they did, which is hardly anything.
0: Thank you. Today, in modern biblical translations, the translator will make all kinds of word choices that are informed by mountains of biblical scholarship. But usually, they do not provide footnotes or a bibliography or otherwise explicitly cite their sources, and this is not considered plagiarism. Granted, Joseph Smith's translation was not necessarily like that of modern translators trained in biblical languages. Might Joseph Smith's use of Adam Clark be similar? Clark's work informed some of his word choices the way scholarship often informs modern translators' word choices. I think that is a very good point.
1: I think there's a lot to that. It's not an uncomplicated issue. Um, I'll, as, as kind of a counterpoint, I'll just bring up Adam Clark's own commentary where he has uh, does quite a bit of work without attribution, some of which he does accomplish in a general manner in his preface. Um, uh, and then he also does have lots of footnotes um, with uh, what even today we would consider adequate scholarly documentation. That, that, guy, that guy is amazing. But I don't think he's the standard to measure Joseph Smith against. Um, I appreciate this question because it gives me a chance to say... You know, trying to frame this stuff as plagiarism, in addition to the fact that we don't know how Joseph Smith would have presented it, it's just a very ungenerous, hypercritical way of framing the whole issue that's kind of driven by the hermeneutics of suspicion in uh, anti-Mormon or ex-Mormon dialogue. And, um, you know, you can see where they're coming from on that, right, and, and how, to, how they try to make that argument, but it's actually, uh, I would, you know, it's, it's highly problematic and questionable and, and very ungenerous way to approach um, what's going on.
0: Yeah, hypercritical. I'm shocked. No, I shouldn't say that. This is, yeah. Um, so let me um, read the next question. Haley Wilson Lemon and Tom Wehment acknowledge that Adam Clark does not account for the larger portions of the JST, such as the Book of Moses. How would you categorize this large expansion of Scripture? Restoration of a lost text? Revelation of a new text? Uh, pseudographia? Uh, or something... In t- us entirely
1: okay, tough question, fair question. Um, uh, it's clear um, from other paratexts that I didn't have time to cover that that material is presenting itself as revelation or revelatory translation, um, and that's how I look at it myself personally. Um, and I believe that it's based on uh, actual history. Um, not quite sure what, what I think about um, whether it's, this stuff was written down in that way at that time, and I'm not sure that, I think some of the text is kind of presenting itself that way and others uh, maybe not. Okay. My
0: answer is, I don't know enough about that. That's good, But but I guess what you're saying in in, in all of this comment is, is you're not saying the Joseph Smith translation is a restoration of the Bible back to its original form, correct?
1: Well, not necessarily. I don't know enough to say that. Okay. Um, There certainly could be some of that. There are passages that seem to make the most sense in that way, but there are others that are not like that. So I think it is a, a, a combination of, of
0: various things. Interesting. That's really interesting. So your final question is, good luck with this one, it says, do you have an example of a broader Christian hymn that was adapted to the restored gospel?
1: The one that pops right into my mind is uh, an old camp meeting song And I'm sorry, I can't remember the title, but William W. Phelps adapts it, just like it explains in the preface to the church hymnal, adapts it for Mormon usage, and he changes this kind of generic camp meeting salvation song to a song about the Lamanites. So that's a very clear and specific instance of exactly what the preface to the hymnal is talking about. Borrowing material from outside, bringing it in, and adapting it uh, to the needs of the church. And that's exactly how I would look at the Adam Clark commentary utilization. Uh, It's consulted, uh, selectively utilized, and adapted uh, to make the Bible more understandable and that Joseph Smith is not necessarily intending that readers take that as an instance of pure revelation.
0: Thank you. I really appreciate your time and thank you very much. Now we went a little long on this session so we're going to take you. a five minute break and in five minutes we'll come back.